I want to encourage you, church, to go ahead and take out your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. I hope you grabbed an outline on your way in this morning. As usual, that will be our guide through God's Word this morning. So if you didn't, it's okay. The answer will be on the the screen behind me, but you can simply just take down those notes because I'd strongly encourage you to do so just to enhance uh, your time and our time in God's Word together uh, and to glean everything that it has to show us. And so, church, I'm going to go ahead, and we are going to jump right in this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word once again. I know you just sat down, but we are in Exodus chapter 6, and verses 1 through 9 is our text this morning. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, having already declared such outstanding and long-reaching and long-lasting theological truths from your word in song, we pray that as we read your word now, uh, that it would move the lost to repentance, that it would move those whom you have saved to obedience. And Lord, I pray that it would bind the wandering, that it would focus our hearts and our minds' attention to live lives of worship and mission for your glory. And we know, Lord, that that will be for our good. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated this morning. So we started this series just last week, and this series is predicated on seeing the undeniable redemptive purpose of God as displayed throughout history and realizing then how modern Christian missions is joining in with God's redemptive purpose. And as I pointed out last week, we too often have this narrow focus of missions, and sometimes we only think missions to be uh, conserved to the Great Commission. And we think that missions began there, but really when we look at the entire storyline of Scripture, we see that God has been purposing to make Himself known among the nations from the beginning. 
And we see that God's glory is the objective purpose of missions, that that is the object of missions, to bring glory to God's name. And so when we start with that as our beginning point, it helps to rightly align everything else that comes after that. And that was what we saw last week. And so the problem that I want us to see this week, and, and how does that happen? How do we have just kind of a, a misaligned view of missions or a, really an incomplete view of missions? And the problem is perspective, that we too often have such a small view of missions and a small sense of urgency when it comes to missions because our perspective is based solely on our own experience. And sometimes the adverse is also true. So sometimes we have a small view, a very narrow view of missions, and that prevents us, it precludes us. We allow that to keep us from walking out in missions or viewing missions from a holistic perspective, right? Well, sometimes the adverse is also true. We look at the task of missions as being too daunting. We look at it too, too big. It's too far. The sin is too great that we, we get so overwhelmed at the idea of missions that we'll just shut it out of our purview and focus our attention elsewhere. Right? So the, both these extremes can be true and exist within the church. And we'll focus our attention on sanctification and discipleship, right? That's kind of how we think when we, when we get overwhelmed or either we have too small or too big and, and we allow ourselves to be get, become overwhelmed by missions. So we'll focus our attention on sanctification. We'll focus our attention on discipleship. Well, the problem that we'll run into there is that in order to grow in discipleship, as outlined in God's Word, we must be involved in missions. We'll focus our attention on worship and study of God's Word. Well, the, the problem you'll run into there is that if you're truly engaging in those things, God's Word tells us that the Spirit will use those things to overflow into a life of missions, right? So again, this is the focus of this short little series that we're engaged in here. To see the mandate that we have as followers of Christ to missions and to see how that didn't just begin in the New Testament, but is a continuation of God's redemptive purpose throughout history as revealed in his word. So again, the problem is perspective. When we view missions as centered on, dependent upon, or primarily for us, then all of these problems and more can occur. So what we need then is a perspective shift. If perspective is the problem, we need a perspective shift. What we need is to see that missions flows from the heart of a God that is so much bigger than we can conceive and yet knows every grain of sand on the seashore and sees us exactly where we are at and has providentially aligned those things and aligned us to walk in accordance with his mission. I want to tell you a story before we dive into unpacking this morning's text. Uh, it's one of the most memorable stories from my childhood. In fact, we, as we were gathered around the Christmas table just a few weeks back with the family, this story came up because it's so memorable, um, partially because it, now I can look back and laugh at it, right? So, uh, when I was, I think I was like 12 or 13, my family and I, we went on a spring break mission trip to the Grand Canyon. 
right? And so on this spring break mission trip, part of the plan was to hike the Grand Canyon. And I don't mean just a hike in the Grand Canyon. We were going to hike to the bottom and back out in the same day, all right? It was a bad idea. It's such a bad idea. They have signs every mile along the trails telling you not to do that, right? So we didn't know that, but every, every mile it says, do not hike to the bottom and back up in the same day, all right? So only if you're like super fit, very prepared, which I was not at this point in my life, right? And so for whatever reason, this was the, the idea that we had. So we set out, you know, you start up at the top rim, you start hiking down to the bottom, and it, springtime, but it's farther north, right? So there's a little bit of snow and ice still on the trail here and there, which was kind of fun. And then you get down to the bottom. There's a place down at the bottom called the Phantom Ranch, best lemonade I've ever had in my life, probably because I was just so super exhausted and tired, right? And uh, when, when you get down to the bottom, it's like 80 degrees, and we didn't bring nearly enough water. So at this point, it's time to start the track back up, right? Because if you got to go down, you got to get up to go out, right? And so we start the trek up, and this is the most daunting part. It takes forever to get back up. I don't even remember how, like, what the round mileage was for this trip, but if you can imagine, it's starting to get dark. And the pe- some of the people that were fit and athletic and more well-prepared than us that had taken different trails, we saw them pass us on the way down and pass us going back up right? So that's never a good thing. In in case you're not much of a hiker, you've never been on a trip like that, that's not a good thing if you're seeing the same people uh, at two different points in the day, okay? And so it's getting late. It's starting to get dark. Well, then we realize another thing, that we entered at a point that was close to the cabin where we were camping, right? But our exit point was about three miles away, from where we were coming. And and we were going to have to, the plan was to take a bus. But when it takes you longer than it should, that means you run the risk of missing the last bus, right? And so there's many times where multiple different of us broke down crying on the way back up, right? So if you can imagine, I'm sitting on the side of the Grand Canyon just bawling, and then my brother's bawling, and I'm trying to console him, and then I'm bawling again, and he's trying to console me at different points, right? Well, it's getting close to 10 o'clock, which was last bus, and we're just about to peek over the rim of the canyon, and then I hear the bus, and I'm like, oh, no. And so all of a sudden, I had this immaculate burst of energy. I, you know, I was bawling because I was so exhausted, yet all of a sudden, I had this burst of energy. I took off sprinting the last little bit, and I got over the rim of the canyon just in time to see the bus start to pull away. And I sprint, and I'm running to the bus, and I'm yelling, and the bus didn't hear me. So we had to hike the, the other three miles back to the cabin. Now, I tell you that story. It'll, it'll all make sense as we move along because we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, right, and we look at that, and we say, like, wow. We hike it, and we realize, again, just how big it is. And so here in a little bit, I want, to, I want you to see the perspective shift that we have because we look at missions sometimes. We think it's way too big. And then we realize once we get started that it's doable. 
And sometimes we get bogged down in the middle of that trek. We get bogged down in the middle of that journey, but then we realize the goal. And I want us this morning to look at missions and see the big task that lays ahead of us of getting the gospel to the nations, but realize that that task does not rely on our abilities or our strength to be able to do and and to walk that trail. All right, but it is holy by God's preparation, his providence and provision that we walk that task according to his plan. And my prayer is that when we at least try to have some finite grasp of the grand nature of God and his redemptive purpose in the world, that we at least attempt that, that we will cease to ever view this world the same way again. I'll never look at the Grand Canyon the same way again as, after, as I have after that trip. And my prayer is that we will view everything that distracts us from giving God glory and pointing others to him as a complete waste of our life, okay? That we will view everything in our life that distracts us from giving him glory and from pointing others to him as a complete waste of our life. And so the challenge here in this text this morning and in God's word is don't waste your life, okay? And my prayer is that we would raise our families to see that serving his kingdom and his will is far greater than building our false little play kingdoms of self. And I believe that's what our text this morning leads us to do. So we have here Exodus chapter 6. This one, this part of the story is often kind of read through, read over, kind of skimmed over because the, the big part of this story that's most often looked at, it's, it's, it's shown under the magnifying glass, is chapter 3, right? Because in chapter 3, we see God revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush. That's the story that everybody heard in Sunday school growing up. You can turn in your Bible just to your left there. And you see Moses is a random shepherd uh, that is uh, out in the desert, and God appears to him in a burning bush, tells him to take his shoes off his feet. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, so God sees that Moses turns aside, God called him out of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. So God calls him by name. So God knows him, Right? Why? Because, again, you're going to continue to see this throughout the story. God had providentially chosen him and, and made him for this exact purpose. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. I mean, there you go. That's the right part. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he's afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. So don't miss this detail. This is just the context part. But God knew exactly who Moses was. He calls his name. He calls him by name out of the bush. And then he says, I have seen and I know my people's suffering. I hear it. So then you go on to, you go on, and Moses, again, you know, if you're familiar with this part of the story, he's like, you got the wrong guy, not going to happen. And God just provides for his every excuse and says, I've given you your brother. So there again, God's providence, like, I've given you your brother. He'll speak on your behalf. He'll be your mouthpiece. As long as you just walk in obedience, do what I tell, tell you to do. You go to chapter 5, and Moses goes to do what God has told him to do, to speak to Pharaoh, If Pharaoh does not respond favorably, if you look at verse 21 of chapter 5, so uh, they met Moses and Aaron. So 
Pharaoh doesn't respond favorably. In fact, he comes down harsher on the people. He says now that they have to do what they ha- their task as slaves, but now they have to do it with less supplies. And in fact, they, they have to make these bricks that they're making with no straw. So he makes life much harder on them. And so in verse 21 of chapter 5, you see the people have met with Moses and Aaron now because Moses and Aaron came saying, the Lord has revealed himself and he said that we are going to set you free. He is going to set you free from your slavery to the Egyptians. And Moses goes, and now life's harder. And this is what the people say to Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, the Lord Look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so they're, they're, the people are despondent, right? They're very upset because Moses has made life harder on them. He's not, he came saying, the Lord has revealed himself. He's told us that he is going to set you free. And now life is much more difficult. In verse 22, then Moses Turn to the Lord. So Moses is going to like, hey, God, like, what's going on here, right? So verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses has some harsh words, some poignant words, some authentic, some some raw, some real words. Like, you said you were going to free them, and you've not done that at all. Why did you even send me? I told you, right? That's kind of the attitude that's that's there. And so now, so Moses, in going and walking obedience to the Lord, hardens the heart of Pharaoh, thereby intensifying the burden on his own people, whom he purposed to rescue, who the Lord purposed to rescue, because he has heard their crying. So the Lord's heard their crying. He sends Moses. And now through Moses, the Lord has hardened the heart of Pharaoh and intensified the burden on his people. And all of this seems pretty counterintuitive, right? It seems like it doesn't really jive with what the Lord is like. The, the purposes are kind of out of alignment, the actions, right? All of this seems like God is working in reverse. And even Moses thinks so. That's, that's the response of Moses here. And so maybe you're sitting here this morning. We're going to get to it. Maybe you're sitting here this morning having heard all this talk about missions last week and this morning, and the idea simply has you overwhelmed, or maybe you're in that camp that has a very small view of missions, very compartmentalized view of missions, and how the vast lostness that exists in this world, maybe it overwhelms you. I mean, consider this, 3 billion people and over 7,000 people groups are considered unreached by the gospel. Three billion people and over 7,000 people groups unreached by the gospel. In North America alone, there's more than 371 million people and an estimated 281 million of the 371 are estimated to be lost. That's that's roughly over 75%. That's just North America. That's where we live, right? So, Three billion people, billion with a B, over 7,000 people groups lost. North America alone, 371 million, over 75% of those lost. And maybe so you're thinking like, like how could we even begin to accomplish this task? 
that lay before us. The lostness is so vast and so far-reaching. And the impacts of sinfulness, I just see it growing every day. Maybe it's the travel that has you overwhelmed at the thought, or maybe you think like, 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 you just compartmentalize that three billion and you say, well, look, we just got to focus on that, three, that 281 here at home, right? So that's the small view. Like, that's both sides there. So consider these words of Moses that we just heard his prayer. And now consider the Lord's response in verse 1 of chapter 6, our text this morning. But the Lord said to Moses, now. You shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So here's the thing. The English sentence structure here can kind of confuse us as to who is doing what in this sentence. So when you look at the Hebrew, we see that the he here in most of this sentence is referring to who has the strong hand, refers not to Pharaoh, but to the Lord. So the people are all enraged at what Moses has done. In their eyes, he's made life worse for them. Pharaoh is too big an adversary to overcome. Now he's even more bent against them. Moses is too distraught. So he cries out, why did you even send me? You've not delivered this people at all, Moses says. And the Lord says, now you shall see what I am going to do with Pharaoh. And I've made this statement before, but it it rings true here. When the world is at its darkest, the light of God's salvation shines the brightest. Because God uses this moment of desperation And this moment of hardening Pharaoh's heart and making and intensifying the burden on his people to greater glorify himself in the heart of Moses and to multiply the sweetness of his salvation and to glorify himself through the sinfulness of Pharaoh. So this story makes the sovereignty of God in all things an undeniable reality as you see the Lord at work in here. So he says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So, verse 2, we move on. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. So again, that's the name that he revealed himself in chapter 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So I got a little ahead of myself there, but why does God repeat his personal name here to Moses? Think about that that there in verse 2 again. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. As if Moses didn't know who he was crying out to, as if Moses forgot. Does he think Moses has short-term memory loss? Does he think that Moses is hard of hearing or dumb? Obviously not, right? Just like last week when the Lord revealed himself to Abraham, as we saw last week, as God Almighty, this personal revelation of his name is what framed everything that the Lord was doing after that. And so this week, this 
once again, re-emphasizing, restating his personal name here, is framing everything that the Lord is getting ready to do through Moses. He's making himself known that he might be rightly glorified in the salvation of his people for his name's sake. Now, there's some disagreement here because as you, as you see, he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. However, the reality is we see Abraham last week uh, in some of the verses we looked at, Abraham used this name for Lord, right? And so the idea here is that the Lord said, I did not reveal, I did not make known what the importance of this name was. I did not show that. But he's made that known personally and, and undeniably to Moses. He's making himself known that he might be rightly glorified in the salvation of his people. So what's happening here is that God is revealing to Moses in a more complete way what this name means and represents. That is that his name, Yahweh, simultaneously represents both the eternality of God, that is that he has existed from all eternity past, right, and the personal nature of God wrapped up in one perfect name. And that's what he reveals to Moses there in chapter 3. And that's what he is emphasizing here as he reveals himself and expounds upon this name to his people. Is that this name, Yahweh, his personal name, Lord there, all capitalized in your Bibles. It represents both the eternality of God, that I am who I am. I have existed before creation. I was before there was a beginning, right? And it simultaneously represents the personal nature of God, that he wants to be known by his personal name. And it wraps that up in one perfect name. So we see... As we saw last week in Genesis 17, the introduction of the name is the foundational attribute by which God is acting in the moment. So last week it was God Almighty. And so the same God here, he says, who was strong enough, powerful enough, mighty enough to make a covenant with Abraham and to see it through to this point, the Lord says, yeah, that's me. The Lord, I am. So think about it, church. Everything that happens from the covenant with Abraham and forward in this story is of God's faithfulness to his covenant. By Joseph's own confession, it was God who brought he and his family to Egypt for God's own purposes, not his brother's selfish acts. Remember what Joseph said, what you intended for evil, God used for good. So here his descendants are in Egypt where they have multiplied. That's what we see here in, in our story here in Exodus. His descent, Joseph's descendants are here in Egypt in complete consistency with what God announced to Abraham. And now they're persecuted and enslaved. And in this moment, God reveals his providential purposes through his personal name. He says, I did all of this through them. And they didn't even know the meaning of Yahweh. They didn't even know the meaning of I am. I did all this. Why? Because I, I am God Almighty and I am. So last week we saw that the person and purpose of God reveal the mission of God. 
And here this week, I want you to see there on your outline that the mission of God is directly tied to the power and presence of God because that's what God is making known here in this moment. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. And here I am also Yahweh. So I am almighty, I have all power and authority and work out all things according to my will, and I have been from before there was even a beginning. So if you want to have a greater understanding of the mission of God, if you want to have a hunger for taking the gospel to the nations, if you want to have a greater focus in your desire to follow the Great Commission, you must become overwhelmed with the power and presence of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. That that is the only way that we will begin to knock on the door and walk in obedience to the task at hand is if we have a proper perspective shift into just how big and powerful and present our God is. He is the Almighty God and the personal Lord. He is El Shaddai and Yahweh. He is simultaneously God Almighty, standing above time and space, and Yahweh, the personal Lord. All that he sets out to accomplish, he does by his omnipotent power, and he does so not from a distance. He does so not from a distance, but from the midst of the situation. He's not some caricature God who stands far off with power of of lightning bolts to hurl and to to punish and to, to just watch from afar. He is God Almighty who personally and powerfully makes himself known as he accomplished what he sets out to do. And when we know God personally, as he desires to be known and has revealed himself in Scripture, then our small minded approach to missions completely shifts. We no longer compartmentalize each subset of missions as if to say, I'm all for local missions, but I'm I'm not about national missions, or I'm for national missions, I'm for international missions. Rather, we view a trip to Uganda as an overflow and a continuation of a partnership in Wyoming as a continuation of our ongoing conversations with our one. When we realize that Yahweh is God Almighty, we know that nothing he sets out to do can be stopped. And that which he sets out to do is his will, which we saw last week. The mission of God is directed by the will of God. I came across this quote from Herman Bavinck, a Dutch theologian who died in 1921. And it fits so well with this point that I couldn't help but share it with you. He said this, to know God does not consist of knowing a great deal about him, but of this rather, that we have encountered him on our life's way and that in the experience of our soul, we have come to know his virtues, his righteousness and holiness, his compassion and his grace. And here's why I think that fits so well in this, is to know God is not altogether wrapped in Knowing, wrapped up in knowing facts about him, but rather to be overwhelmed at the attributes through which God has made himself known. And this is what compels missions, is that we have been so overwhelmed 
at the presence of God and realizing his grace in our lives that we can't help but make that known. That God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, has personally revealed himself in the face of Jesus and we can't help but respond in obedience to make his glory known. Because as we say, I say it all the time, only God can give revelation of himself and he does so through his word. And this is even further reason for the church as the people of God to rejoice. For God has even further made himself known to us in the person of Jesus. That here God reveals himself through Moses. It gives his name. But in Jesus, he gave us himself in the person of the, the second person of the Trinity. He has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And as we continue reading, we see how the personal nature of God is interwoven into every facet of this story. Pick back up there in verse 4. I also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. The Lord reveals himself. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, and not made myself known. I establish my covenant with them. Right, so he reminds Moses here of his covenant faithfulness. In other words, to them, I revealed myself as God Almighty and made my covenant with them. And it is by my almighty providence that I did exactly what I promised in my covenant, is what God is saying here. But if you've kept up with your Bible reading, which I encourage you, just another plug. If you haven't jumped in, grab a Bible reading plan and jump in with us because it's going to be a crucial part of our times in God's Word on these Sundays. But if you kept up with your Bible reading, you also know that the Lord providentially brought them out of Canaan in the Joseph story and brought them exactly to where they're at here. So the Lord is calling Moses' attention to see how he is acting in faithfulness to all that he has said and done. Church, how much more has he proven himself faithful to us in our salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, you want to talk about jaw-dropping faithfulness in the face of complete and utter rebellion? We are living examples of that in the gospel. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Because Jesus so poignantly speaks to this very situation. Not exactly the story, but the situation and the covenant surrounding the story. So here in John chapter 8, verse 48, John chapter 8 is a rather long uh, chapter. But we have a lot of important things happen in this chapter. So at the beginning, we have the story of this, this woman who's caught in adultery. And the, the Pharisees and Sadducees bring this woman to Jesus so that... He might proclaim her guilty. Say, what, what, uh, you know, what has she done? He said, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So again, they're trying to use this woman as just a pawn to catch Jesus up, right? So Jesus goes on, and this is the famous statement that is known by all non-believers. You who is without sin cast the first stone, right? It's the most famous Bible verse among non-believers. But here then Jesus continues to say, he makes the famous statement, I am the light of the world, right? 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He goes on to say again, and he continues, he talks about the truth will set, me free, set you free. So he's making lots of famous Jesus statements here in this one chapter. But go to verse 48, because that's, that's where I want us to, to look at. So the Jews answered him, because Jesus has asked them, he's, he's you know, turning the tables back on them, which of you convicts me of sin? Uh, this verse 46, if I tell the truth, why would you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear is that you are not of God, right? So Jesus is accusing them of not being one with God's people and knowing God's word. And so the Jews answer him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So again, talking about God there, talking about his oneness with God, and how God is the one who is glorifying him in this situation, how he's not seeking his own glory. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do, know him, do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so here it is. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so here then, Obviously, this is a great blasphemy because Jesus has just not only used the covenant name and in their eyes profaned it, but he's also claimed that title as his own. And so, therefore, showing his oneness with the Father and his deity. And so they pick up stones to throw him. The author of Hebrews also addresses this same issue and, and the connection between the covenant with Abraham and then how the Lord uses that to then bring about this situation with Moses. Uh, or through Moses, the Lord goes on to provide us with the law. And the author of Hebrews, if you just want to make a note of it, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so here, what the, the, the gospel account here in John 8, what Jesus is trying to get through and what the author of Hebrews is trying to get through is that he is walking in complete fulfillment with what God did here and he is worthy of greater glory than uh, Moses. He is worthy of greater glory than Abraham because he is walking as the more perfect Abraham, the more perfect Moses. And he's doing so, God is doing so in Christ in complete 
faithfulness to his covenant. Just as God is acting here in Exodus in complete faithfulness to his covenant. Because that's what he reveals there in verse 4. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And so he said, I am, what I am doing here is a complete faithfulness with the covenant that I made with them. And that's the next point there on your outline, that God's covenant faithfulness is the hope of missions. And again, this isn't the wishy-washy, feeble hope of this world. That's not how I'm using the word hope there. This is the sure, steadfast hope that we have as followers of Christ. So in looking to the cross of Christ, in light of our own salvation, we can see the Christian hope of God's faithfulness, which fills our sails to move in obedience in missions. The empty cross, empty cross and the empty grave are the ultimate symbols of God's covenant faithfulness and redemptive purpose in Christ. And this is what makes the Great Commission so sweet. All authority has been given unto me, Jesus says. Go, therefore. Why has all authority been given unto him? Because he walked in complete covenant faithfulness and obedience to what the Father had laid out. So through the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on his church so that we may, through his power, walk in obedience and take his gospel to the ends of the earth. And so know this, if you sit here today unsure of where you stand with God, it is God who has providentially brought you here for the purpose of making his grace known in your heart and drawing you to himself that you might repent and believe. And my prayer is that you would submit to that drawing and be saved. And I'll be right down here in front at the end of this service if you'd like to visit about what that looks like. But we press on. So as we turn our attention back to Exodus... We're reminded that it is God's personal presence and power which is at work in all of this. Verse 5. So this is God speaking again to Moses. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So again, I established my covenant, and I have heard their groaning, and I am here in complete faithfulness to that covenant. So God reminds Moses of the very thing that caused him to act for his own namesake when he revealed himself in chapter 3. I am. I am as I have always been. I have existed from eternity past, and yet I am here revealing myself personally to you and to my people. I am simultaneously in the far reaches of the universe and right here hearing the cries of my people. And that brings the next point on your outline. God knows the suffering of his people in a sinful world. Because God is by nature all-powerful and all-present, he knows the suffering of our fallen world. He knows it. He knows every bit of suffering you are experiencing right now. The grief, the anger, lament, whatever it is, all of it, completely useful for your good and for his glory. And this is how I want to draw together that Grand Canyon story. If you look, I've got a picture here of the Grand Canyon. All right? I don't know if I can see it back here. Can we go to that next picture of the Grand Canyon, guys? Thank you. All right, so there's a picture there of the Grand Canyon, right? And so we look at that and we think, wow, that's huge. I really think it's huge because, I, because of my trip, right? I told you that, right? So this we look at this and we think this is big. 
So we're talking about perspective shifts this morning. So this is what God sees when he looks at the Grand Canyon, right? Next picture, please. Thank you. All right, so I know if, if you want to be literal, I know that's, the, that's Africa right there, okay? But just bear with me, all right? So this is what God sees when he looks at the Grand Canyon. But ultimately, honestly, that's an insult to God to say that that's what he sees. Go to the next picture. This is what God sees when he looks at the Grand Canyon. But even that, that too is an insult to God's grandeur and omnipotence and omnipresence. That is what God sees when he looks at the Grand Canyon, right? But honestly, it's even bigger than that. That's as far out as we can get, right? Because that's from the James Webb telescope. If you're not familiar, it's the most recent telescope that is taken incredible pictures that we have never seen to the far reaches of space. And yet God looks at us and we are but even a smaller, more infinitesimal little dot on that picture. And that's what he sees when he looks at the Grand Canyon. Yet God is there. Go to the next picture. So in revealing himself as God Almighty and Yahweh, God says, I am here and I am there simultaneously. I am there with you Little teenage Blake crying on the side of the cliffs of the Grand Canyon, right? And I am out here. He is with you in your suffering, and he is out there. And so he stands above it all, outside our conception of what time is, and he is working everything for his providential purposes and glory. And so we would somehow look at missions and think that it's overwhelming. We would think seven billion people and three billion loss and, and 7,000 people groups. And, and we think over 75% of our own country uh, or north of our own continent lost, right? And we, we get overwhelmed. But God looks at it and he is in complete control. And he has called us to play a role in his providential purposes. So Yahweh, the Almighty God, has revealed to us his redemptive purpose in the world, and he has made us a part to play in it. If only we lived with that conviction, what an impact a small church like us could have on the kingdom of God if we lived with that perspective of God, that he is simultaneously here and he's simultaneously above it all, working all for his glory, and he's called us to play a role in it. Because what we see next is that God doesn't just know our suffering in a sinful world. He acts on it. Verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So again, remember here the context. That to this point, God has acted to purposefully harden the heart of Pharaoh and increase the burden of his people. Okay, so in that moment, it might seem like that Moses and the people are justified in what they said there at the end of chapter 5. But now, again, God is saying, now I will show you what I will do with Pharaoh. And so, of course, Moses, before knowing that, says, what's up with this, God? And God says, this dialogue so far has been God reminding Moses on how he, on now how he's instructing his people and how he is working here. 
So now God says, I'm the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Because this, this is so good. So if you're caught up with us in our Bible reading, you'll notice how it was God who providentially designed his people to be in this very moment. So it was God who put them in slavery to Pharaoh, and now God has hardened the heart of Pharaoh, increased their burden, and what is he doing with it? Showing his greater glory in the midst of these hardships. Providentially working that his name might be made known. So now, here they sit enslaved, and now because the Lord has acted, they have an even greater burden and a more angry Pharaoh, and the Lord says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. And that's the next point that you see there on your outlines, that God acts to redeem his people from sin. God acts here to bring his people out of slavery, all according to his providential purposes, and to bring glory to his name. This is what Paul says to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 9, he, he points to these things, and he points how God was working in all of this to make himself known sovereignly and holy. And he says in, in Romans 9, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness of the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There he's talking about how his own people, his, the Israelites, won't realize what God has done in Christ. And how it links with what God has been doing from this moment, from before this moment that we're looking at in Exodus, and on. And how he's accomplished all of that in Christ. And Paul is anguishing. It gives him sorrow that they're going to die without knowing the goodness and the truth of Christ and believing in it. So Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So there he's quoting his own word. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So he goes on to say in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Indeed, that's what the Lord goes on to say to Pharaoh. So here in the final part of the Lord's address to Moses, he addresses the focal point. Verse 7 there of Exodus 6. I know kind of back and forth here towards the end, but we're, and we are drawing to the end. Back in Exodus 6, this is what, this is how God addresses uh, here in the fi his final address to uh, Moses, verse 7 of chapter 6. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. 
So here in the final part of the Lord's address to Moses, he addresses the focal point of all that he is doing here in this moment. That he has been at work, is at work, and will be at work to make himself known. That he is taking his people according to his faithful loving kindness, that he might enter into covenant relationship with them as a people. He has revealed himself in this special way. He's given even further and deeper understanding of who he is for this purpose. He's taking this people and bringing them into relationship with himself, not according to anything that they have done, but wholly because of his will. And this relationship will be shown in his abounding grace toward them. And he's going to bless them and protect them and they, that they might find their joy in him. And this is the purpose here being revealed. He's bringing them out that they might find their joy in him as he sends them out into the land that he has provided. And so here's the truth that I want us to see, the final point there on your outline. God redeems that he might send. So God knows the suffering of his people in a sinful world. God acts to redeem his people from the suffering of their sin. And God redeems that he might send them back into that sinful world. The life that God calls us to live is impossible in and of ourselves. And until all of our joy is rightly found in him, knowing him, praising him, making him known, we will toil to live lives of meaningless mediocrity until we know him. Because we go on from here, and here's how the story continues. So you go to Exodus chapter 7, and you see Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them, Exodus 7 verse 6. Then you go to you get to the end of the plagues, toward the end of the plagues there, Exodus 9. And God is speaking directly to Pharaoh, to a pagan king, the very pagan king whose heart he has hardened, who's, who has, he has caused to give a greater burden on, in, of slavery on his people. And this is exactly what Paul quoted there in Romans 9. This is what God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Church, God has accomplished everything for us in Christ, lifting us up way above what we deserve so that we as his church might live out his purposes of making his name known among the nations. So may we walk in obedience to it. May the same be said of us that the Lord's church did so just as the Lord commanded them. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to enter into a time of response. We, we have this time of response every Sunday, and the purpose of this time is, is not uh, one-fold, right? The, ter- the purpose is exactly how it's labeled, to respond, to respond in complete uh, worship, of God's grace that he has revealed through his word. The the purpose is for those who are saved to respond in obedience and repentance. And the purpose is for those who are lost to respond to God's drawing them to himself through his word. And so my prayer always for this time is that you would respond accordingly. If you know the Lord, you have a personal relationship with him, you know him personally, praise the Lord. Respond as he has said according to his word. If you don't, respond as he has said according to his word. Let's pray. God, we love you. We pray now 
in this time of response that you would help us to respond appropriately. That as you have made yourself known, you have revealed your redemptive purpose throughout history, that you have called us and saved us according to the work of Christ on the cross, that we might make that known among the nations. Help us to walk in obedience to your call to missions. Help us to see how you have been at work making yourself known from the foundations. And help us to be completely overwhelmed at your grace that you call us to play a part. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.